Morning, everyone. I saw... Well, I want to give you guys a big round of applause for coming out in the bloody cold. Well done, everybody. How y'all feeling this morning? I don't know how I'm going to transition from Merry Christmas to what I have to say, so I just want you to take a deep breath, forget about all that, and rewind. So about, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, how old am I now? Lots. A lot of years ago, I was in Regina. And it was so cold in there, in my, the room, I was in a dorm, it was so cold, I didn't sleep on my mattress, I put them against the wall to try and keep the cold air out. But I remember being in a classroom, and I've told you this, this story before, it was with a guy named Mabialo Kenzo, Theology One. I was doing master's level. But my undergrad was in engineering, so we're in this class, and, and Kenzo says, blah, 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 then the devil, blah, 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 blah. Now, I'm here to study the Bible, which is the foundation of the Christian tradition. So when he says, blah, 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 the devil, blah, 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 I'm assuming he means the devil's in the Bible. And so I didn't really understand where, so I put up my hand, and I was like, so, um, excuse me, could you tell me where in the Bible it talks about the devil? Everyone's looking at me like, he's sitting right there and he just asked that question. How dare you ask that question? Everybody knows the devil's in the Bible. Everybody knows that, you dummy. And I still remember, this is one of the most fundamental stories. The prof starts going through his notes. He starts flipping his pages to try and find the references. And he's, at first he's flipping them quietly, then he's getting more and more upset. By the end, he's like almost ripping the pages out, and I'm going, I, I don't know what I just did here. I just wanted to know where the devil is in the Bible. Because you see, I grew up with this idea, and if you grew up in a traditional church, you might know some of this story. I was very little. They told me that when you die, you'll go someplace else. And you have two options. Heaven which was whatever you liked, candy, gold, ice cream, sundaes, you know, whatever. And then they said, there's this place called hell. And hell is run by the devil. And then they had us put a candle out, and they said, put your hand on top of that candle and feel the heat. Can you feel it? Yeah, yeah, that's for eternity. That's hell. Like, okay, whatever you need me to do to not have that, I'm in. Whatever you need me to do. They said, say these, this prayer, you're golden. I'm like, great, I'll say it three times. Which is why I'm sitting back with Mabiello Kenzo. And essentially I'm asking him, where does the Bible talk about the devil and hell and all this stuff? And he can't find it. He's got a PhD. The class is looking at me like I'm some moron. But then I realized, oh wait. The devil and hell and all this stuff doesn't come from the Bible. Literally blew my mind. I've been obsessed with the afterlife concepts since then. Because I'm going, wait a second. No, no, no. <laughs> Time out, back up, back up. I was six years old. I said a prayer to get out of hell. That better frickin' be part of this. 
Over years and years, I've studied it. Finally, I read a book by a guy named Bart Erdman. And he laid out where this conception of afterlife, heaven, hell, what it looks like came from. And it's not from the Bible. The Old Testament, our oldest ancestors, the most wisdom that we have, the stuff that's lasted thousands of years, says nothing. Nothing. Jesus, he has a conception, but it's nothing like what we grew up with. Nothing. So where the heck did this come from? And that was the prime motivator for me back then. I was actually having coffee with Patricia the other day. The other day? Seems like the... <laughs> and I started telling her this, and she's like, Vince, when are you going to talk about that in a series? And finally, she was the one who's... I was like, no, no, we, I think we need to talk about this. This isn't because I'm trying to wreck anything. If you grew up with this motivation that's like, you know, hey, the, there's this heaven and the hell, and if you live this way or you do this certain thing, you get to go to heaven, and if you don't, you go to hell. If that's what you grew up with and that's something precious to you, I'm not trying to break that at all. What I am trying to break is fear-mongering. This idea that says all this is is this, we're going to create this really horrible picture and you're just going to try and get out of there. This has nothing to do with here, how we live, how we treat each other, the love that we do, any of that stuff. It has nothing to do with that. It just has to do with this thing here. Furthermore, I don't want you guys to go into the world and suddenly someone's like, oh yeah, by the way, it's not there. And suddenly the whole thing falls apart for you. I told, about 10 years ago, I told a guy about this research. He's like, then what's the whole point of being in a spiritual journey? If it's not to get out of hell and get into heaven, like, what's the point? I can do whatever the hell I want now. I was like, well, that's not what I was trying to do. But I think we're all adults here. We can learn these things. We can grow. We can ask ourselves, why is it that I'm here today? Or online. Why did I tune in? What is this story about? Is heaven and hell the whole thing? Candle, hand, burning forever? Or is there another picture we can create? Is there a picture that our spiritual ancestors tried to paint for us that we just miss because all we see is heaven and hell? Could we make this journey richer when we understand the nuances of our spiritual ancestors. That's what we're going to start. Remember, December 24th, we have a Christmas Eve service. You should all come out. It's awesome. The bar opens at, I think, 4.30. Service starts at 5. We're going to be in and out in 50 minutes so you can get home and eat turkey and or whatever you do. Christmas Day, Sunday, we will not have a service Christmas Day. We will not have a service uh, New Year's Day. We'll be back on the 8th to explore this idea of fear-mongering. I want to invite you back. Kelty. Hey, good morning. My name is Kelty, and uh, this is a part of our service we call Charitable Giving. So you are used to hearing me stand up here and talk to you a little bit about how our church is self-funded and that we rely on the generosity of this community to help fund everything to do with our church. That still all stands. You can donate through the website. You can donate through the app. We would love that. This morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about what I actually believe is Vince's hell on earth, which is the staff offering. Um, He is going to sit there uncomfortable for the next 90 seconds while we chat through this. 
But what the staff offering is, is an opportunity at this time of year where we sit as a community and reflect on the amazing work. Um, oh, it makes me cry every year, which is why I'm not on, part on the schedule for the Christmas Eve service to do this, because I cried too much last year. Um, but we really think about the community and the, what the staff does for our community. And if you think it's just Sunday mornings, I urge you to sit tight and just think a little bit about all of the things it takes to get us here on Sundays. And whether that is... Um, if you're here physically, a nod in the hallway, an email follow-up, whether it's something to do with your kids and the great activities that the kids are doing uh, today, the Switch group is downstairs doing their Christmas activities, or whether it's the, the younger kids, whether that's something to do with getting your tax receipt, um, because every year I try to figure that out and can never quite remember how to do that, whether that's a message that you thought was spoken directly to you, it was. Um, whether you took it from home or you took it from here, this is our chance where we get to sit back and think about ways that we can say thank you. And thank you doesn't have to be a monetary thank you. I can tell you that this staff loves to just hear those words, to understand how meaningful it has been to them. But if you do want to make a donation to support the staff offering this year, we would be happy to receive that money. You can do it in all the normal ways. The app has a special drop-down, and it talks specifically about staff offering. Uh, you can click on that button and do a one-time donation there. If you're here in person this morning, there's a black box at the back of the room. If you can't figure out either of those, please do reach out, and we'll make it work for you. So that's the staff offering. The last thing my job is to do is just to remind you what Vince just told you, which is that there is a Christmas Eve service next week. It starts at four, the doors open at 4.30. Uh, the service starts at 5. We promise a short and sweet service. And then there's no service on the 25th, no service on the 1st, and we'll see you back here or online on the 8th. Thanks very much. Happy holidays. So let's just pretend I just blacked out for the last five minutes, and now I'm back. Um, anyone know the common lore of Santa Claus? What's, what's the deal? If you are nice, then you get what? Presents. Presents. Is it like toys and candy? Is there like some, does he have a rule about that? He's some fat elf in the North Pole who's got rules. I don't know. And if you're naughty, then what happens? You get a lump of coal. Well, I took the test this week because I wanted to see if I was naughty or nice. Can you throw that up for me, Jeremy? Total lie. 100% lie. Thank you, Cairo. <laughs> Cairo knows me. <laughs> it's all lies, folks. But it's this interesting idea of reward. Because we've been looking at this whole idea of trying to live meaningful lives. We've been working on this since September. What is your meaningful life? Is it around career, education, family, how you want to be as a person, honoring your soul? What is a meaningful life? That's tricky because I can see some of your faces are looking at me a little blankly like, uh, I got nothing. <laughs> Worth looking at. But even if you take something small, how then do you actually get to live that meaningful life? It's all fine and good to say, hey, I want a good relationship with my friend. You know, I value them. I want a good relationship. But then you never do anything to actually make that happen. Well, because there's Netflix and there's cold outside and I don't really want to, you know, blah, blah, blah. You come up with a million excuses. Willpower is the process of going, I want a meaningful life. 
I'm going to choose the things that I want to do to get there. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Except at the same time as wanting to be connected with your friend, you also want to sit at home and eat a whole chocolate cake. That's troublesome. So willpower is this process of, I want two things at the same time. One I hope leads to my meaningful life. One leads me to not good things. How do we consistently choose the thing that leads to a meaningful life? There's actually one really interesting way to do it. I'm going to tell it through kids. So I'm not a parent, so I don't know anything about kids. But imagine your four-year-old. Which one's have meltdowns in, in grocery stores. What age is that? All of them. <laughs> so imagine your 18-year-old. <laughs> imagine your two to four-year-old. Okay, they're at the grocery store with you. They're about, tell me one of the right height, about that high. I have a niece, that's kind of all I know about this. But So we would go to the grocery store and she would see her favorite chocolate bar. Now, I'm her uncle, so I just buy it for her, because whatever she wants, I'll buy it for her. But her mom would handle it completely differently. She's like, no, 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 it's just before supper. If you eat that, you're going to wreck your supper. No chocolate bar for you. What do you think happens? Any guesses? Come on, parents, you all know what's going to happen, right? It's going to start off with like... (laughs) And pretty soon that kid is like naked on the ground, screaming and throwing shit all over the place. And the parents are like, ah! And I'm the single lonely guy going, that's why I didn't have kids right there. (laughs) Now, if you're a really clever parent, here's what you're going to do. It's, what are we, six days before Christmas? Here's what you would say. The kid, you're you're right to say, rewind. Kid sees a chocolate bar. Daddy, daddy, I want the chocolate bar. No. You see the lips starting to come out, you know, starting to get upset, and you say, okay, but wait, wait, wait. Do you want to be on Santa's Santa's naughty list or his nice list? If you're nice, you're going to get presents and toys and chocolate. But if you're naughty, what are you going to get? Kid's lip is like... (laughs) And then they they take all of their energy, and they're like... (laughs) Inside, they're doing the mental math. Chocolate bar now, whole stocking full of chocolate bars, but that's six days away. That's a long time from now. Okay, I'll take it, Mom. I'll take it, Dad. And they don't have a blow-up. You get out of the grocery store without having to deal with that whole, like, snotty screamingness. That seems like pretty good parenting, doesn't it? How many parents, if you're fully honest, have at some point in your life used that kind of logic to get through? I'm lucky to you, Cairo. (laughs) Of course you would. Of course you would. Now, here's the thing. We're using rewards to motivate something. Seems like a good motivational thing, right? We're trying to make sure that we do, we choose the good thing, not the bad thing in this willpower challenge. Do the thing that's a meaningful life. I'm going to reach out to my friends. I'm going to, you know, do something nice for my partner. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to eat healthy. Those are the healthy things, right? And so we're trying to motivate ourselves to do that. As you're looking at the kid and going, go, I did it. You use motivation to get the kid to not lose his mind in the grocery store. 
Now, it's not going to work in January because the kid's like 12 months from that. You want me to wait 12 months? There's no way. Bless you. Now, let's take this to the adult part of our lives. I was at a pub the other day. You've all had this conversation. Person comes over. What would you like? I'll have a burger. And what would you like with that burger? Fries or salad? Now, what's the right answer? Fries. <laughs> You're all going to hell. That was a joke, just in case. My doctor, I just went and saw my doctor. My doctor's going to say, Vince, you need to eat the salad. Aha. Uh-huh. But I knew I was going to the pub that night. And so that day, I, I worked down here. There's a sun terror right over there. I eat there almost every day. They have everything you could possibly want. They have a whole bakery. They make fresh pasta every day that they broil perfectly, and then they lay it out under heat lamps for lunch. Does that not sound delicious? Fresh Alfredo with melted cheese. Oh. But I was going to the pub that night. So what do you think I did? I ate a salad for lunch. That's healthy, right? It's all I ate, just a salad. It was okay. Not the most delicious thing I've ever eaten, but whatever. I got through. But I was like, ha I did the right thing. So what am I going to have with the burger? <laughs> Fries with gravy and cheese on top. Yes. I rewarded myself. You think that two-year-old's the only one who does this? If you're naughty, then you're going to get a lump of coal. If you're nice, you're going to get presents and toys. No. Vince, if you eat a salad, you're going to get to have fries for supper. Fries. I just rewarded myself to motivate myself to eat the salad at lunch. Anyone seeing the flaw in my logic here? I used to live in Edmonton. I was just off White Ave, if you know Edmonton. And there's these two lovely ladies who um, had kids in strollers. And every couple days, I'd see them. They'd go for a run. About 20 minutes. Pushing the kids around. Kind of like, just like a do-do-do-do. You could tell they were like, hey, look, we just had babies. We want to get in shape again, blah, blah, blah. But then they'd run to the Baskin and Robbins and have a Sunday to say, like, good for us. We exercise today. I did the math. The run burnt 100 calories. The Sunday reward burned, or was 1,000 calories. If you do that three times a week, you're going to gain three pounds per month, every month. And in fact, Kelly McGonigal, in our book, The Willpower Instinct, I forgot to put the title up, it's the book we use. She tells about a lady who wants to lose a bunch of weight for her wedding. And she uses rewards to try and motivate herself to exercise. You can all guess what happened, right? She's horrified. I've run on the treadmill more than I've ever run in my entire life, and my weight is climbing. Because we tend to reward ourselves, not with salad. I don't reward myself like, hey, I ate good for lunch, so now I'm going to have a salad for supper to reward myself. Oh, no. What do we reward ourselves with? All the bad stuff. Why do we do that? Has anyone ever rewarded themselves with something crazy healthy? Like, I'm going to reward myself with like a tofu salad with no dressing. (laughs) Motivating? (laughs) Getting a hard no from the front row. 
So how does this thing work? Why is it that we consistently try to motivate ourselves, but we use something bad to do it? You know, it's like, I'm going to try not to drink too much at this party. And so I drink, you know, I go through the whole party. I don't drink anything. And at the end, I'm like, yeah, I did it. So I'm going to have a glass of wine at night. I was good. I didn't overspend at Christmas. So I'm going to blow it in January. Why is it that we reward ourselves with the very thing that's not meaningful in our lives? I reward my healthy eating with fries. This, this stuck with me for a while. I couldn't figure this out until I read a study. This study, so first it's going to offend you because it's, it's offensive. But this is what happens when you go to university and you become part of the psychology department. You have to be participate in these studies. So let me tell you how it went. Two groups of people. This group. They, set, they had them come up one at a time, and they asked them this very important question. Do you strongly disagree, disagree, are you neutral, agree, or ag- strongly agree to this question? Most women are not really smart. I would have loved to see that. Like the number of times someone just punched the researcher in the face. Your, your faces are all like, huh. Do you strongly disagree all the way to strongly agree with the statement, most women are not really smart? Brutal. Okay. Other group of people. They took them together again, one at a time. They asked them this question. Some women are not really smart. This is pretty easy. All women are not really smart, or most women are not It's just stupid. It's just a stupid question. You're stupid. I should punch you in the face, whatever. Some women, now, if you're a mathematician, you're going, well, if there's an average, and average is here, half of them are smarter than that, half of them are not as smart as that. So some women are not really smart. Mathematically is right, but yeah, we're trying to have a little bit better way of talking about gender and how we do this. So, ah, who, um... I don't know my answer. I don't know my answer. And then they answered. But that wasn't the study. That was the prime. Do you guys know what priming is? You do something to get someone's brain state in a certain place. So remember, most women are not really smart. Some women are not really smart. They brought them all together, and they had a panel. And they brought people in to interview for a job. This is actually the study. They brought in a bunch of people to interview for a job. And it was like a traditionally male job, let's say engineer. And they brought in candidates, and these are like fake candidates, and they're all perfectly balanced in terms of skill, experience, education, whatever. They brought in all these people. And at the end, they had everybody say, give us your top five candidates for this engineering job. Guess whose hiring practices were the most sexist? by a good chunk. You'd think it's these people over here who's like, some women are not really smart. Well, ooh, sexist buggers. Wasn't them. They had completely balanced hiring practices. Well, if it's not these guys, it's got to be those people. But that doesn't make any sense, right? Because these people said, most women are not really smart. They're like, screw you, you're a moron. Punch them in the face. 
There's no way that this group would be the most sexist in their hiring practices. There's no way. And yet that's what the study found. The people who were most adamant to say, I disagree with that question, and I think you're a horrible person for asking it, and how dare you? That group had the most sexist hiring practices. I had to read this study three times because I was like, okay, wait, I'm not understanding this properly. Sorry, this group? This group that was the most like vocal, the most adamant, are now, the very next thing they do is have sexist hiring practices? Does that make any sense to anybody? It does make no sense to me. Oh, someone at the back. Psychology major? Oh, just a smart person. I like it. What the study was trying to show us and trying to elucidate was this. A concept that psychologists call moral licensing. Can you throw it up for me, Jeremy? Moral licensing, a tendency to justify our current poor actions using previous good behavior. Do you see how it works? These people, these bastions of sexual equality, these people who speak against the patriarchy. How dare you ask such a horrible question as most women are not really smart. Screw you. Screw the horse you rode in on. I'll have none of this. I did really good there. The people over here who are looking at the, some women are not really smart. They're going, oh my goodness. I don't even know what to say here. What the study shows us is when you've done something really good, your tendency to do something not as good in your next action goes up. Think of it this way. I ate a salad for lunch. It was a crappy salad. It had only healthy things on it. Look at me. What do you think I'm going to order with my burger at supper? Because I did something good for lunch, I can justify something bad for supper. Have you seen this inside of you ever? I did all that work for my family to make an amazing Christmas. Now I'm going to justify buying myself a new whatever. For me, it's in traffic. It's this idea. I let somebody in. You know, we're all lined up and someone comes to the front of the line and then signals to get in. So I let him in because I'm a nice guy. Look at me. I let the person in. What do you think the next person who tries to get in front of me happens? Screw you. It's my turn. I already did something good. I get to treat you however I want. You're all laughing because you all do this, right? (laughs) Moral licensing. The idea is that when you do something good, if you're not careful, you'll justify something bad for your next action. I went to my family gathering. That's the good thing. Look at me. I hate those people. They drive me nuts. How do you reward yourself? I work really hard. I did this big project and I I got it all done. But I need a stapler at home, so I'm just going to take that. When you look at it from this point of view, it looks ridiculous, doesn't it? And yet, I do it all the time. I was literally, last night, I'm thinking about my message. I, um, 
I got kicked out of my storage area. Had to move to a different storage area. So I'm, you know, it's minus 20 yesterday. I'm driving, blah, blah, blah. It's four o'clock. I've been at it since eight in the morning. I'm driving home, thinking about this message. And I'm thinking about this message. And at the same time, I'm thinking, wow, I've had a long day. I've been moving in the cold. It's a lot of work. I should have fast food. I've been trying to eat healthy. I've been trying to like, do good things. I'm trying to keep my blood sugar low, and it's, all I can think about is this big frickin' Coke that I'm going to drink right now. And then my brain goes, wait a second, you're doing it, you dummy. You guys wonder, what did Kelty say? Sometimes it feels like our messages are spoken directly to you. It's because I'm talking to myself half the time. Moral licensing. The more good you do, the more bad. So let's go back. We've done this whole series. We've been talking about King David and Bathsheba. Remember the story? King David sees this beautiful woman on her rooftop. She's married, closed relationship, not available. What does he do? He invites her over. What do we know about willpower? When you bring the thing you're tempted at closer to you, what happens? <laughs> Your brain. So I'm going to tell you the right answer since you all weren't paying attention last time. Anything that comes closer to you, your brain thinks is more valuable. If you want to avoid something, if that's part of your meaningful life, put it further away. Your brain will go, oh, a donut right in front of me is really hard to resist. A donut at a half hour walk at Tim Hortons, a lot easier. So David, the dummy, brings his temptation right in front of him. Her value went from beautiful woman on a, a rooftop way away to beautiful woman right in front of him. He can smell her. He can like see her. Her energy. It's like he's he's screwed. Like there's no way he's saying no at this point. But why did he do it? Why did he invite her from that roof? He knows she's married. In fact, somebody asks him one time. He says, "Hey, so there's this rich guy, and he steals something from a poor guy." The rich guy has everything he needs, but he steals the one thing the poor guy has. What should you do to that guy? David's like, you should kill the rich guy. How dare he steal from the poor? So inside, he believes this is bad, and yet he does it in this moment. He steals the wife of somebody who doesn't have as much as him. Why does he do it? I'm going to guess here. This is, the text never says, but this started to make sense when I started to ask the question of the text. Where is their moral licensing? David risks his life fighting a giant. Remember David and Goliath? Same David. He risks everything. I, a teenager, fights a giant for these people. I fought every war for them. I've done everything. I became their king. I work night and day to try and save this nation. I give everything. Look at how good I am. And what happens? What do we know about moral licensing? I deserve. Does it make sense? I do something really good. So I deserve. Oh. 
when I realized that this is what evolution has put in our brains. The reward mechanism that we do, it's just the conscious part of this. Underneath the conscious part is an unconscious part of our brain that's wired to do this. I did something good. Now I get something bad. I can see it everywhere. So if you're like me and you're starting to see through your life going, oh, geez, now what do I do? There's actually a story from the Christmas story that I've tried to talk about for 20 years. I can never get my brain around it. But it has this answer to this question. How do we avoid moral licensing? How do we stop doing something meaningful and feeling like, oh yeah, I, did, I, did, I got a step towards the thing that I valued in life and now I'm going to reward myself with a step back? Best case, it's two steps forward, one step back. Worst case in my life, sometimes it's one step forward, two back. I'm like those Baskin and Robin ladies. I'm gaining three pounds when I'm trying to lose weight. How do you avoid this? So, there's a story of Mary. The story of Mary always starts with the Christmas story, right? Uh, She's pregnant. They go to either Bethlehem or Nazareth, depending on which version of the story you're reading. That's where the Christmas story starts. But it actually starts earlier. We just don't ever hear that part. Mary's walking down the street, and a messenger walks up to her. The word that they use is angel. But you have to remember that angel for them means messenger from God. But it doesn't necessarily mean messenger from God. It means some random person walked up to me and said something that to me is divine. And he said this. Just imagine you're walking down the street one day and someone walks up to you and says, you're going to be the parent of the Savior. What would you say to them? Have another drink. Have another drink. And yet Mary goes, um, well, at first she freaks out. Then she goes a couple more steps. Finally, she comes around to the thing of like, wait a second, you want me to do what? And then it comes around to the, the word the Catholics use is theotokos. Theos, meaning God. So they name her mother of God. You are going to be the mother, or in this case, father, of God. Talk about something to be proud of, huh? If you were literally the person who was going to create this whole story, the, the mother of all Christianity, people are going to say your name forever. That feels pretty good, doesn't it? That feels like, oh, I deserve something. In fact, Mary says it. Can you throw up the, the, the poem she uses is called The Magnificat. The reason I never knew what to do with it is because there's pride in it. And I didn't know what to do with pride. It says this. This is Mary. Uh, I'm using the, the words from Eugene Peterson, a poet that translated the Bible. He says, I'm bursting with God news. I'm dancing the song of my Savior God. God took one good look at me, and look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on the earth. I am the most fortunate woman on the earth. I will be Theodicus. Could that not go to moral licensing? 
Therefore, Joseph, you better bring me some oranges because I'm craving oranges. Dude, I'm Theodicus. But she goes a different way. I like that. What God has done for me will never be forgotten. The God whose very name is holy, set apart from all others. Again, she's talking her theology. But what she's saying is, I am special. I will be special forever. And I didn't know what to do with that in the Christian tradition. Because what's the line? I'm going to jump back a little bit, Jeremy. What's the line that we hear all the time? Pride comes before the fall, right? We've had that for thousands of years. Can you throw it up for me? It actually comes from a doublet of uh, Hebrew poetry. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before the fall. It's the fundamental of moral licensing. When I have pride, I did something good. I ate salad for lunch. The fall is my fries. I called my friend three times because I care about them. Pride is I don't like anything on their social media because screw them. They don't call me. You see how it works? Pride comes before the fall. And Mary has pride. I will be Theodicus. So what do you do with that? That's why I never preached this one. Because I was like, I have no clue what to do with you, Mary. You're proud. But she does what Kelly McGonigal in the Willpower Instinct says we all do. When you have a moment of pride, you honor that pride. I did good. I ate a salad. I went to the gym. I reached out to a friend. I took care of my family. And then you realize there's a butt inside of your brain that's wired in from evolution that's been there for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years that's going to say, therefore, I get to... But it doesn't need to. You can have a choice. What's the one thing that we always hear from Mary? She's kind. She never takes advantage of everyone. Every picture of her is like she's got a glowing halo on her head. She's the mother of God. That's the saying. She's the mother of God. She literally is the most important person in the world. And what does she do with it? Nothing. She feels pride. I will be remembered forever. And then she leaves it. She doesn't tack on the reward. What does a life look like of pride without the reward? Vince, you ate a salad. Good for you. That's towards your meaningful life. Full stop. What does it look like in your life to say, I did good. I took a step towards my meaningful life. I feel pride. I am the most important person in the world. And then stop. I won't sabotage my meaningful life with the reward. That's what Mary does. She just feels pride. I didn't know what to do with that. Again, pride comes before the fall. She's got to screw up at some point. Look at every patriarch. This patriarch is um, the old white guys in the Bible. Uh, Noah. Do you remember Noah in the ark? 
He literally, the story goes, it's a myth. He, he, he saves the entire world from a flood by bringing all the animals together on an ark. What's the next thing that he does? A couple days later, he gets so hammered that he starts to uncover his genitals to his family. Well, that's awkward. I just saved the world. Now I get to drink and become an a-hole. You look at Abraham, brings the nations together, lies. David, king, the most important king of the entire story. Yeah, I gave everything to them, but I deserve Bathsheba. The entire story of the Bible is these stories of pride coming before the fall. Except for Mary. Pride. And she leaves it. Finally, if I look at the Bible through moral licensing, some of these stories make sense. In fact, the Mary story, the Magnificat, the poem that I've been trying to preach to you guys for 20 years that made no sense to me, finally makes sense. It's the way out of moral licensing. Feel proud. And then stop. What would your life look like if you did something good and didn't reward yourself? The meaningful life was the thing you gave to your family. No strings attached. No justification. That's what happens when we see moral licensing. A circuit in our brain that's literally trying to use our success to undermine our meaningful lives. My prayer for you all and for me most is that I can see this. I can see the moment of pride. And then before my brain kicks in and wants to reward it, I stop and say, this is the point. It's not the reward. It's this. We spent a lot of time coming to Christmas talking about meaningful lives. This last series has been called Stick to a Christmas. It's this idea that we want to live healthy Christmases. We want to behave in ways that we're proud of and we're happy with. We want to come through this Christmas not with regrets, not with like, oh, I can't believe, not with visa bills that hit us and we're like, ay, ay, ay. This last one is the most insidious, isn't it? Did anyone hear Jeff's message last week about shame? The more you shame yourself, the less you have willpower. The Christian church has had a history of using guilt and shame, and it's undermining the whole point. There's an evil side of me that finds that very funny. Today, though, watch your successes. Not because they're bad, not because crime becomes before the fall, but because it can, if we're not vigilant. So as you're driving home from moving your stuff and you're tired and you've had a long day, you're proud. I did it. Leave it there.
May we have a Christmas that's full of relationships of value where we honor ourselves, we honor the people around us, and we come through without regrets. May this Christmas be that for all of us. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you on the 24th. Remember nothing on the 25th or the 1st. Have a great week. Take care.